Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The Greenville Oaks Church of Christ seeks all who need Jesus and together are becoming His fully devoted followers, encouraging and equipping people to love God, love people, and serve others in an ever-growing way of life. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. And now, on to this week's message with Congregational Care Minister Keith Maloney. I'm Keith Maloney. I'm one of the ministers here at Greenville Oaks. Our lead minister, Colin Packer, is away today and has invited me to share a message with you. We're going to conclude the series of lessons we've been in on the gospel according to Luke. And I hope that you've found these messages he's been presenting very thought-provoking and challenging as I have. We're blessed to have him uh, as our lead minister here. One of the things... uh, One of the things that we're going to look at today is Luke chapter 14. I invite you to take your Bible right now and uh, turn to Luke 14, uh, whatever format you have that in, because we're going to be there in just just a moment. A key factor in this familiar story that Jesus tells is the giving of excuses that people make. You know, we all give excuses at one time or another, right? I, uh, I was reminded of that when I read uh, something published by Metropolitan Insurance Company about some of their uh, policyholders who had given excuses for the car accidents they had had. One said, I'd been driving for 40 years when I fell asleep at the wheel and had the accident. Another said, the pedestrian had no idea which direction to go, so I ran over him. A third said, the other driver was all over the road. I had to swerve a number of times before I hit him. And finally, one person said, I pulled away from the side of the road, glanced at my mother-in-law, and headed over the embankment. Those aren't great excuses, but they're probably about like some I've given at one time or another. We don't always give great excuses when, uh, when we mess up. We're going to see some in the story, the, the episode from Jesus' life today that are not much better than that, actually. In Luke 14, verse 1, it, it tells the setting of this. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to, into, went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. This is a, a time where Jesus went to eat with some people. We see that over and again in Luke. He, it seems to always be either eating with people or talking about eating. And invariably, he seems to get in hot water when he goes into those situations, often because of who he's eating with. You see, eating was a big deal, particularly who you ate with. And if he wasn't eating with the socially acceptable kind of people, uh, people wouldn't appreciate that. But here, he's eating with somebody that everybody should think was a good person. Because if you were to ask the people in that day, the man on the street, who was a devout person of faith, probably at the top of their list would be a Pharisee. And this guy was a prominent Pharisee. But the other thing we notice from verse 1 is that he was being carefully watched. They were trying to find him doing something wrong. That happened a lot with Jesus. 
But ironically, in this episode, he's not only being carefully watched, he's watching them. Look, skip down to verse 7. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table. You know, there are a lot of differences between ancient Middle Eastern customs and those that we have in 21st century America today. But there are also some ways that, or some dynamics anyway, where things are pretty much the same. And one of those is everybody seems to always want the best seats. Have you noticed that? I remember a time when uh, years ago, Cindy and I, my wife and I were dating And I was trying to impress her. I heard that her favorite recording artist was coming into town to the city where we lived and was going to give a concert in the big arena there. And I decided I would see if I could get tickets to that. Just so happened, one of my brothers was dating a young lady at the time who worked at a place called Ticketmaster, which handled the sales of all of the tickets for this concert. So this was was before you could go online and choose your seats to something, okay? Internet didn't exist. So she was somehow able to get us four seats on the second row right next to the center aisle. I mean, right up by the stage. And I decided I had a little bit of fun with it. So I didn't tell Cindy where we were sitting, just that we were going. She was thrilled even if we were in the upper deck. She just wanted to go to the concert. Well, the four of us go into the arena And before we go up where Cindy thinks our seats are, we start, I say, hey, let's just walk down here and see what it would be like if we could sit right at the front, right there in front of the stage. And she's not too sure about this, but the other three of us are wanting to go. So we start making our way toward the front of the arena and she starts getting more and more nervous. Finally, we get up to that second row and I look over there and I say, look, here's four seats. There's nobody's in. Let's just sit here and see if anybody notices. And she thinks I've lost it. And so I tell her what's going on. Those really are our seats. I scored a few points with her that night, I think. But it doesn't always work out that way. A couple of weeks ago, I got an email. There was uh, an advertisement about a production of of Aladdin, the musical that's coming into Dallas soon. And I've got six grandkids. I'm thinking, you know, they'd probably enjoy going to see Aladdin, right? So I clicked on the little button on screen that says, you know, buy tickets. And I'm thinking, you know, these little kids, they can't hold their attention up in the nosebleed section. So I need to get some decent seats for them. And I click on a a section that I thought would have decent seats. And when I look into it, I find out that to take my six grandkids and their four parents is going to cost me a few thousand dollars. And I decided they didn't really want to go see Aladdin after all. (laughs) You know, we don't always get to have the good seats because they're in high demand. And back in Jesus' day, just like today, typically you have to either have connections or you have to have a lot of money to get the best seats. And that's what was going on what, that Jesus is watching here in Luke chapter 14. They're trying to get the best seats. You see, this is a very status-oriented event, this banquet that he was attending, this dinner at this Pharisee's house. And so everybody wants to get the best seat, which is the seat closest to the host, because that'll up their status with the other people that are there. And Jesus is standing there watching this spirited jockeying for social position. 
And I imagine he's just sitting there shaking his head. And finally, he addresses the people at the table. Look at verse 8. He says, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Even though these were supposedly people of faith, really spiritual people, what Jesus was observing was just this shallow demonstration of self-interest like anybody else would have. It's all about status and connections and seeing if you can one-up someone else. And as we have seen Jesus do so many times as we've gone through Luke's gospel, he challenges the accepted way of doing things to advance your own status. And if that's not enough, then he turns to the host. Look, look at verse 12. Jesus said to his host, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. These were the people nobody wanted at their dinner party. You will be blessed Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, if you've been noticing, you realize that Jesus has now busted the chops of virtually everybody in the room. The guests, the host, putting them in their place. And to to suggest that the atmosphere in the room had become a little tense and uncomfortable is an understatement. I mean, people aren't accustomed to being treated that way. Look at verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. One intrepid soul is trying to kind of smooth things over, trying to, trying to ease the tension just a little bit. And so he says something about eating at the feast in the kingdom of God, which sounds like a pretty random comment to make for us today. That doesn't register real well with us, but it registered very well with all of the people there at the dinner. Because you see, the kingdom of God was this grand and glorious event when God would enter into human history and set everything right that had gone wrong. God would would give them back the place that they saw that they should have. And everything would be the way it should be. And the the metaphor, the imagery that was most often used to represent this great event when God would do this was the great feast in the kingdom of God. If there was ever anything all of the people could agree on in that day, it was how glorious that feast would be. I mean, for this man to say that would be kind of like somebody's championing today the flag or motherhood or apple pie. Or, or think of it as somebody up in Norman, Oklahoma saying boomer sooner, or somebody in Austin, Texas say hook them horns. You got a pretty good idea most people around are going to be on board with what you're saying. Well, I appreciate the heart of a peacemaker and somebody who wants to smooth things over, but Jesus recognized this is simply an attempt to shine the spotlight off 
of some very unhealthy and ungodly attitudes and practices that were going on. So as he often does, Jesus tells a story that, that presents some very insightful truth. Look at verse 16. Jesus replied, a certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. Jesus, the master communicator, takes the the image that's been introduced of this great feast, and he goes with that. Only he's going to a place that they don't expect. I suspect the peacemaker thinks he's been successful in lowering the tension in the room. And you can probably visibly notice people's tensions start to dissipate a little bit. Because you see, everybody loved a good banquet story. It's kind of like a story of Cinderella. Everybody's heard that kind of storyline over and over and over again. And so they start to relax. So when the invitation comes, everybody knows what's going to happen. All those who are invited are going to immediately lay down whatever they're doing and do whatever it takes to go to the dinner, to go to the banquet, this great feast, because nobody would miss that. Not only are they going to do whatever is necessary to make sure they get there, they're going to start texting or tweeting or phoning their friends to brag that they get to go. This is a big deal. This is what they were hoping for. Only in this story... That's not what happens. Jesus, as he so often does, provides a shocking twist on a familiar and expected storyline. At first, in verse 18, they all belike began to make excuses. The first said, I have just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. And another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. And still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. Instead of accepting the invitation and eagerly attending the the dinner, they all blow him off. Now, at first glance, it may seem like these are people who are respectful and gracious as they decline the invitation to the dinner. But when you examine these a little bit more, just a little bit, you realize there being anything but. And there's nobody in the room that would have mistaken any of these excuses for something real, something genuine. I mean, (laughs) these are absurd things to say. Okay? They they represent, uh, well, first of all, the guy who said, I bought some a a field and I got to go look at it. Nobody then or today buys land without seeing it, unless you want to buy swamp property. The person who said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to go try them out, was being absurd. That would be like today saying, oh, I bought five used cars. I'm going to go see if any of them run. We don't do that. And the guy who got married and so he said, I can't come, would never turn down the invitation. He'd bring his wife along with him to the social event of the season. That's not what happens here. Everyone recognizes the absurdity of these excuses and that the people are actually insulting the host. But what's really interesting is these excuses represent the kinds of things that we use to tell God we're too busy to be about what he invites us to do. You see, we make the same excuses today. 
We make the excuse that because we're preoccupied with the things that we need. The man who bought the field reminds us of the people in our day whose primary focus is on the things that we have to have. Folks, Madison Avenue has taken their craft to an art form. And we are bombarded continually with messages saying, if you're going to be successful, you got to live here and you got to go there and you got to have this and you got to do that. And they are really good at convincing us that's what we have to do. But in addition to that, we have a more powerful force that pushes us that direction today. It's called social media. Because we see people tweeting or texting or posting on Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media outlet you use about what they've done. And we think we've got to have that too. That's what I have to have. That's what I have to do to be successful. Well, the excuse makers were considered successful people in the eyes of their friends and associates. But not in God's eyes. Or the second guy. The man with the oxen represents all of those who are so absorbed with their occupation, their career, that everything else just gets crowded out. You know, our jobs demand more of us and more is expected of people today than has ever been before. We're constantly required to do more with less and to devote your first priority to your job. Or if not, they'll get somebody who will. And because of that intense, insane level of commitment that, was, that is expected of us in our work, spiritual things get pushed aside or crowded out altogether. And third, we make excuses because we choose to put others before God. Our the relationships before our relationship with God. The man who got married and can't come was all about his family concerns and cares. And this is a really hard one to see. This is really hard to recognize in our lives. Because after all, God wants us to love and care for our family, right? God wants us to provide for them. And so we think that we're doing what he calls us to do. In fact, this, this one is often underneath the other two. We feel pressured to work to an unreasonable degree at our job so that we can have the means to provide for our family those things that we believe will make us successful as a husband or wife or father or mother. And in the process, God just gets kind of shoved to the side. Folks, none of these things are evil in and of themselves. But when we take that which is secondary and make it primary in our lives, and we take God and relegate him to second or third or fourth place, then we've done the same thing these guys were doing with the invitation that they had. <clears throat> it, 
you see, there lies deep, deeply embedded within each one of us a desire to be about me first. And that's just natural. It happens to every one of us. You don't believe it, look at the little kid. Look at a baby when a baby's born. They're so sweet, so innocent. But if there was ever a self-centered creature on God's earth, a baby is one. It's all about feed me, hold me, change me, rock me, entertain me. And as we, as we get older and we learn to talk, we're very clear about it. Little kids go, me first, me first, me first. Of course, our parents, they very graciously teach us not to be that way. They don't want us thinking that way or feeling that way. The problem is what we learn is not to say that. But we're still there. It's about my interests and my concerns. No one escapes that trap. It's my problem. And it's your problem too. The truth is we're all unable by our own power to get rid of that me first attitude. That's the reason the gospel, this gospel according to Luke that Jesus is bringing at its core is repentance and faith. Repentance isn't just admitting I've done some bad things, okay? <laughs> I know I've done bad things. And if you've been around me, observing me very long at all, you've seen me do bad things. I mean, I, I hate it when I do that, but I go, oh, man, I messed up. Oh, I wish I hadn't done that. Boy, that was, that was stupid. But I do it. Repentance is not just I'm admitting bad things that I've done. Repentance is when I come to the awareness and I admit that even the good stuff I do is about me first. Because so often when I do good stuff, it's an attempt to control God or control you. Because if I do enough good stuff, then God is going to have to reward me and bless me. And if I do some good stuff for you, then you're going to owe me. And so often, that's where it comes from. Genuine repentance occurs when we admit that even the good stuff we do are done in self-interest and self-righteousness so many times. And, I, and we realize that my biggest problem is this me-first attitude. But when, we, when we get there, when we understand that, then we come to faith. You see, repentance is, is coming to the realization and acknowledging that there's something down inside me that's about me first. And faith means coming to understand that I have a God who loves me and values me so much that he was willing to give his own son for me. And I believe that. He didn't do it because I was doing good stuff for him. He didn't do it because I was doing good stuff for other people. He did it when I was making absurd excuses for why I wasn't following his way and thumbing my nose at his invitation to his party. And he loved me anyway. And when I, when I understand that, 
I'm not only ashamed of that whole me first stuff that keeps creeping into my heart and my mind, but I don't need that anymore. It becomes unnecessary because I have a value and a worth in who I am because God loves me. The creator of the universe, the most powerful force in existence loves me enough to send his son to die for me. Nobody can take that away from me. But that doesn't mean the battle's over. This, this me first thing is like a spiritual cancer that eats away at the good cells in my spiritual life. And it's in repentance and faith that God puts that spiritual cancer into remission because I can't get it done on my own. I tried. And it's only by God's power that it's going to happen. You know, when you have physical cancer and it goes into remission, doesn't mean it's all gone, but you're getting better. And when my spiritual cancer gets, goes into remission, it doesn't mean it's all gone. I mean, there's still a battle. The Bible is very clear that after we become children of God, after we, after we come to repentance and faith, there's still a battle to be fought because that old self and the new self are at war with each other. That natural person and that spiritual person are, are fighting. There, there's a tug of war going on. And I am certainly capable of regressing back to those old me first attitudes. But it means that that which has permeated the way I think and who I am doesn't control everything about me anymore. Because of that, the gospel changes everything. It changes how I see me. It gives me a self-identity and a self-worth that is absolutely indestructible because it comes from God. And it changes the way I see other people and it changes the way I relate to them. It lets me value people in a way that I was never able to value them before. It lets me forgive people that I wouldn't be able to forgive without it. And it also changes the way I see my possessions and my work and my family. You see... It frees me to let all of these measures of this artificial success that the world so constantly tells me I have to have, to let them go. Because I have found genuine, genuine significance in Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus finishes this story in a way that is absolutely shocking to everybody present. Look at verse 21. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered the servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. See, at the end of Jesus' story, it's the outsiders who became the insiders, and the insiders wound up being the outsiders. People who were first on the guest list, the wealthy, the prominent, the powerful, the ones with all the possessions and all the esteem, the ones who were the religious leaders that everybody thought had it all down right, those people were excluded. And the people who were the guests of honor at the party were the ones who humbly accepted the invitation 
of the one who was the host. And seated at the host in the great feast in the kingdom of God. Next, at the, at the banquet, at the feast, next to the host, Jesus, will not be those people of power and position and prominence and all of the things the world says are going to be there. But will be the poor and the lame and the people that had nothing except that they accepted the invitation. God's banquet feast will be the most remarkable party ever thrown. Folks, I'm so thankful that we have a church like this where people like Zach can be accepted and loved and valued. I'm so thankful for ministries like the Shine Ministry on Sundays and the Friday Night Lights Ministry on Friday nights that values those people. I'm thankful we have ministries like Celebrate Recovery that where we say to people, come on in with all your hurts, all your hang-ups, all your habits, and we'll walk with you through those. Even though life has chewed you up and spit you out, you're welcome here. This is a safe place for you because you matter. I'm thankful for individual people in this church that are reaching out to people that the world doesn't consider valuable. People like Jimmy Mercer. We lost a great servant this last week. You may know that Jimmy was, had a career as an officer in the Dallas Police Department for years, decades. What you may not be aware of is that he and Carol for years kept dozens and dozens of children that didn't have any other place to go. They were in a foster home. And they, Jimmy and Carol provided for them, nurtured them, cared for them. And even when that chapter of their life came to a close as time went on, they still provided for people that were, didn't have parents, for orphans all over the world in all of these different countries. I'm so thankful this is a place where there are people like that because I think we begin to understand that it's not about all the haves, it's all about us. We don't miss out on it because we are caught up in trying so hard to be one of the insiders today that we become one of the outsiders when God's party begins. Let's pray together. Oh God, forgive us for thinking our own things are so important that we can't make our first priority accepting your invitation. Free us from the bondage of the me first attitude that the enemy is so good at embedding in our hearts and that keeps us enslaved to so many things we think we have to be about. Allow us to understand how much you love us and the value you give us that surpasses anything we could possibly achieve on our own efforts. And let us simply revel in your love. For we pray this through the one who not only told us of that love, but who demonstrated that love on the cross in the name of Jesus Christ. And amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you in your walk to find real significance in Jesus. Connect with us on Instagram. You can find and follow us there at Greenville Oaks. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.